Welcome to the Good Mother, Bad Woman podcast, where we know how to be good mothers, but we might be bad women for different reasons. I'm your host, Stacia Caprice, a happy single mom of three girls. My youngest daughter has special needs. My blended family includes three daughters by three different dads, girl, one divorce, nine living grandparents, maybe two different girlfriends, and a bonus mama who's married to one of the dads, helping me raise my baby, and the Lord blessed me with a part-time nanny, and girl, all three of us get along just fine. To those of us who are mothers, I think we love our kids just fine, but even though our kids are a big part of our lives, they're still only part of it, right? And that part of us that existed before and after kids, that woman inside is demanding to be heard without being labeled depressed, postpartum, or a bad woman just because she didn't disappear with her mommy job title, okay? I'm not a doctor, coach, or psychologist. I'm just somebody navigating this life without the owner's manual, girl, just like you. And today, we want to get into our feelings and talk about what are some of the barriers between us and safe masculinity. So the broader purpose of Good Mother, Bad Woman is to go deeper into the idea that people are more than one thing and to understand how different or sometimes dueling emotions can exist in the same space and within the same person, right? But in order to do that, I think it's important to be able to better describe our emotions and name our feelings outside of just anxiety or depression so that we can better explain our experiences and kind of move away from these tragically isolated inner lives that we all live, right? I mean, the whole concept like nobody knows who we really are because we technically only show them one thing externally right but internally we feel like we're the only ones going through what we're going through and that's just not true right so um today's approach to that kind of inner life turmoil is to discuss how that affects men and women um in relationships or attempted relationships and what are some of those barriers that kind of prevent the beautiful balance of you know um perfect or healthy femininity and masculinity which would benefit us in childhood and then family and which would ultimately affect uh, community and the overall society, right? So author and research extraordinaire, Ms. Brene Brown, has written several books about shame and vulnerability, and you should read all of them. But one of the books in particular that I love is called um, Atlas of the Heart, right, where she maps out 87 emotions that we should consider when trying to uh, achieve meaningful connection with each other and really naming what she calls um, the language of our human experience, right? She does, um, you know, really a phenomenal job of doing this very deep scholarly research, but, but explaining it to us, kitchen tables, so we can so we can process right and one of the cool parts of her uh, research for this particular book was she surveyed 7,000 people over five years and found that on average people can only identify three emotions as they are actually feeling them right those emotions are happiness sadness and anger that's it so you know if you're a man or a woman and you're having a hard time expressing how you feel outside of happy, sad, and angry, sprinkle in a little anxiety and depression, then honey, you already have a lot in common with a whole lot of people. Okay. <laughs> Why is this important, right? Because if all we do is take everything that we don't understand about ourselves and just dismiss it as toxic or anxiety, depression, or postpartum, uh, postpartum, or say something like, you know, she's crazy or just PMSing, then that's where people usually stop the diagnosis, right? They just kind of accept their fate in that space without going deeper to see the actual cause of these emotions, right? And that is ultimately what therapy is for or what um, books like Atlas of the Heart can help you do, right? They help you take the next steps, give you the map or atlas for where to go next emotionally, right? 
But without a map, you know, people remain where they are or lost at best. So, for example, if we, you know, label men as toxic every time they do something that is less than Prince Charming worthy or a relationship doesn't work out, then that toxicity remains in our culture and relationships unchallenged, right? It just is what it is. Now, listen, when it comes to what a man should do next and who is responsible for getting him to next and whose fault is it that he's lost in the first place is a very hot topic, very triggering, okay? And listen, at no point in this discussion are we trying to bash either gender. Um, So if you feel triggered at some point, just stay with me. I promise not to leave you there, okay? (laughs) One of the barriers between us and safe masculinity is the pervasive denial of male pain. So for starters, I like to say that describing something as male pain is somewhat irrelevant and unhelpful, right? Just like describing something as black on black crime, because crime is crime, right? Once the guns come out, what difference does the skin color make on the outcome of the victim, right? I mean, the majority of school shootings that we hear about or know about are done by white students at white schools, right? They don't come to the hood and shoot people, but it's never described as white on white crime, even though technically that's what it is, right? The problem of categorizing something as male or black or white or female is that it gives people the option to care about it or not, right? If they don't identify with the categorization of it. When in reality, you know, we all can identify with pain and suffering, even though we may experience pain for different reasons. So talking about why men feel pain is almost impossible to do if we deny or insist that the pain does not exist, right? When you think about the fact that a woman is technically a man's first protector, right? From the womb to her arms. That first nine months of his existence is just him and her, right? Daddy has to wait. And the the whole concept of patriarchal conditioning or patriarchal poisoning is that it does not want anyone to be their full authentic self, right? So from infancy, the patriarchal demon seeks to extract a man's physical strength from his emotions so he can turn him into either a desensitized killer or a mindless worker bee who uses his strength to work the most for the minimum wages until he dies, right? For the woman, it seeks to extract her sexuality, to manufacture more humans, and to benefit from the pleasure and profit of her sexual exploitation. Okay, so (laughs) when it comes to mother and child initially, you know, most women, a lot of women, are going to want for their sons to grow up to be sensitive and emotionally stable and, you know, for their daughters to be able to grow up and dress however she wants without teaching them that boys don't cry and that double standards exist for girls, right? But as mothers, we also want to equip our child to survive the world that they actually live in, right? So for that reason, we still give in to these patriarchal pressures. And without a man as her emotionally connected partner, this system of disguising domination as masculinity is effective and very difficult to break, right? And listen, not having an emotionally connected partner um, does not mean an, an absentee father automatically. You could be married to a man who was raised in patriarchy and fully subscribes to patriarchal conditioning in the household. Like, this is what it means to be a man, and this is all I know, right? You know, it's interesting, this concept of emotional separation is is even biblical, right? Because when God was handing out punishments to Adam and Eve in the garden, I didn't really think about the fact that the devil was standing like right there, right? The, the snake was there listening because he was also getting in trouble, right? Like where your dad used to line you and your siblings up for a lecture and spank you one at a time while the others watched. <laughs> That's exactly what was happening in the garden. But one of the things God said to Eve, which I just did not understand in my Sunday school days, I'm like, God, this is so misogynistic, wasn't the King James version of Genesis. He was like, like, 
Eve would long for her husband and he would lord over her. Now, longing means to have a yearning desire and to lord over someone means to assert authority or dominance over somebody, right? So here's the devil sitting right there listening to this whole scheme like, aha, I know I'm going to manipulate this situation, right? But God, you know, finally explained to me um, kind of through reading um, that the word long means to measure a great distance. And so I was like, ah, I got it. Listen, the original sin between Adam and Eve caused a falling away from God. It caused a falling away from the garden. It caused a falling away from each other, right? She will long for him because he will be so distant from her emotionally, right? Because physically, you know, they were still together. They were married, right? He would lord over her aggressively because that's all he can do without access to his feminine side or uh, being emotionally connected to his wife, right? Because she came from him, right? The story is God took the rib or a piece of him away and that he was supposed Supposed to pursue for connection and completion. And that's why the Bible says uh, when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. It also says it is not good for a man to be alone. But dismissing male pain comes partly from, you know, if you go back to the whole Adam curse thing where he said that he would have to work hard labor all of his life. So it's easier for patriarchy to kind of manipulate and say, hey, suffering is part of what it means to be a man. So shut up and don't cry about it. Only shut up and don't cry about it was not part of the punishment, right? But that's exactly what we teach our sweet young boys, like, immediately. Like, parents even feel like a little boy's ability to be manly and tough in kindergarten is a reflection of their good parenting or their bad parenting, right? Because if the boy is weak, then it's all, well, where is his father? And the mom is making him too soft. And it's like, dude, chill out. He just got potty trained, like, yesterday. You know what I mean? (laughs) We teach our poor baby boys, like, the lack of feeling is required evidence of their masculinity. And to be honest, we teach our girls to expect that same quality from a quote real man right but if a woman is a man's first protector she can absolutely protect him by being his first teacher in patriarchal conditioning right you know as a woman it's interesting it's not until you have a baby son or a nephew or fall in love with your best friend's baby son that you realize that you have this like unconscious bias towards prepping him to survive this uh toxic masculinity culture right For some moms, not all of them, it is painful for them to tell their baby boy not to cry uh, just because he's a boy or toughen up and move on without telling him emotionally how to move on because she doesn't know. So the boys are confused and shamed into doing something and becoming something without having the tools or instructions for how to do it, right? And then they get punished and teased for not being manly enough. The girls don't want them and all of that can be painful, right? That just sits there and remains, I always tell people in my classes, I'm like, hey, the Bible never says the word uh, shame. It never teaches you to be ashamed of yourself, right? Because the goal of shame is to literally wound you forever for what you have done. Like, you should be ashamed of yourself for crying over this girl. You should be ashamed of yourself for losing this fight. If you were a real man, you wouldn't care and you wouldn't have lost. And uh, we know that neither of those things are true. Amen. Moving on to my second point, um, you know, this whole topic came to my mind because I was, you know, deep diving through my own frustrations with men, participating in all of these aggressive gender issue conversations. And I asked God, like to myself, I was like, yo, I was like, why did you create men so incapable of doing anything that matters outside of sex and money, right? Like, why is that all they care about? (laughs) What was the point of making us so different, you know, men and women? And I started to write about it so I could hear God eventually. And I remember writing, I said, remember a time when it wasn't a woman's job to manage a man's fear, 
right? A day when he was like 9, 10, 11 years old and the men in the village would come and separate him from his mother within the guardrails of his all-male community. He would be taught and pushed and made to confront the things that only men could face and given the tools that only men could teach another man how to use, right? The girls would also be taught roles in the community and how their bodies worked and what to expect so that when the boy and girl came back together again, they came together as graduates from childhood as official adults. Amen? Honey, if you don't remember a time when boys had these kind of rites of passage ceremonies, it's because they haven't been around for decades, okay? One of the barriers between us and safe masculinity is the lack of the initiated man, okay? I can't even tell you, like, how many stories of men I know whose lives turned out poorly because their father wasn't there or he died prematurely or because there was no other man to immediately step into this father role as he grew up, right? Or or got older without growing up at all. And without having that that brotherhood or that community um, that men actually crave, right? Um, and being left completely unprotected against this get rich or die trying culture, it creates this hyper-competitive, every man for himself type of environment, right? Right? It makes it much easier for men to bond in these kind of low vibrational ways, which is, you know, over a common enemy or bros over hoes or my crew versus your crew, right? We know that gangs still have rites of passage ceremonies offering distorted versions of brotherhood that still hurt the community and uh, that still hurt the community and leads the individual to jail or death, right? Gangs, mafia, cartels, terrorist groups that come in every single race in every single space, right? But it doesn't have to be a street gang. I mean, it could be a financial gang. It could be, you know, the Wall Street Hustlers gang. It could be the gang of morally bankrupt lawyer gang. You know what I mean? Anything that isolates money and power as the only thing to care about, regardless of the danger or hurt that it causes him or other people, right? There's this book that I have in my personal library called The King, Warrior, Magician, and Lover, uh, Rediscovering the Archetypes of the Mature Masculine by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. And initially, I brought the book to help me write better male characters for my fiction, but I finally picked it up uh, to read the first few pages. And then their thesis was the problem of the uninitiated man and how this has led us to a crisis in masculinity. Honey, listen, crisis in masculinity alone is worthy of its own podcast, Right. But the book goes on to say that the disappearing father, whether emotional or physical abandonment or both, wreaks psychological devastation on the children of both sexes. The weaker absent father cripples both his daughter's and son's ability to achieve their own gender identity and to relate in an intimate and positive way with members of their own sex and the opposite sex. Okay, it's me. He's talking about me. All right. I'll speak up for us because, you know, listen, women don't make babies by themselves, right? Men play an important role in in a child's emotional development after that baby has survived the physical development in the womb. And we don't always share that message because I don't think we always believe it either, right? We see ourselves as it's it's the mother who's the only one capable and you're lucky to get a good guy in exchange, right? But hear me out. If I were your adversary, right, and I noticed that you were in possession of a tool that would help you win a fight that I wanted you to lose, well, instead of snatching that tool from you, I need to convince you to lay it down, right? And I would do that by, you know, telling you the tool was silly, unnecessary, old, unuseful, talk shit about it until you laid it down discouraged and I picked it up for my advantage, right? 
there's a proverb in the Bible that addresses that too. But in, in real life, here's an example. It's kind of like when Suge Knight told Tupac not to wear his bulletproof vest the night he was murdered, right? They said, um, Tupac was already paranoid at this point in his life. He was carrying guns and wearing bulletproof vests all the time. And, and maybe he should have left the guns at home. But what was the harm in him wearing his bulletproof vest that particular night? If that's what he wanted to do, why was that something that Suge specifically wanted him to remove, right? And Suge, of course, was rumored at the time to have conspired in his murder. Why would he isolate that one thing? And so as a man, you know, you might start to consider or wonder what is the value of your emotional tools that patriarchy doesn't want you to know about? What is happening to you as a result of trying to survive life without these tools, right? How is that connected to your male pain? Amen. Zora Neale Hurston uh, was the one who said, you know, if you're silent about your pain, they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. Okay, that whole boys will be boys will be written on your tombstone. He died like a man. But it's like, yeah, what did you die for? You know what I mean? Chapter one of this book um, is called The Crisis of the Masculine Ritual Process, where he says a man who cannot, quote, get it together is a man who probably has not had the opportunity to undergo the ritual initiation into the deep structure of manhood. He remains a boy, not because he wants to, but because no one has shown him how to transform boy energies into man energies. He said, when men get older without growing up, we have what they call the dominance of boy psychology. Boy psychology, according to these male authors who are also psychoanalysts, is evidenced by abusive and violent behavior towards men and women, right? It's based on a boy's fear of women. It's based on a boy's fear of a real man. So boy psychology in an adult man is the inability to act effectively and creatively in his own life, let alone inspire others, um, inspire those things in someone else, right? So it's kind of like, um, uh, it's like just like a, a predator or a lion would rather attack a baby buffalo or baby elephant, despite being the big king of the jungle, right? He's still looking for an easy kill, which I think is interesting, right? Because to attack a fully grown adult animal is to invite the possibility that he might lose, right? Because now there's strength in numbers and now, or it's just an equal fight in terms of, you know, weight. Patriarch, I'm telling you guys, is terrified of full healthy masculine development or the fullness of femininity because that is where our equal strength against patriarchy exists, right? Moving on to our third barrier, let's bring the ladies into this one, okay? This is three out of four things that we're going to talk about today. But there was this meme or tweet floating around this summer that asked, accusingly, if men didn't exist, who would protect you, right? To which a woman replied, protect us from who? <laughs> Listen, girl, I get it. It's hard to identify or empathize with the person suffering if that person is actively causing you pain, all right? I mean, the phrase that says hurt people hurt people does not capture the response of the victims of that hurt, right? It's a phrase often used just to justify walking away from hurting people altogether. And listen, women, you know, we have different levels of stamina for the way a man's love can hurt in exchange for it, right? I mean, we hope over time that they hear us, feel us, need us, and, and many men act like they do, right? I mean, every man who is struggling with male pain is not toxic, aggressive, or overtly abusive, right? I mean, some of them are very romantic. They marry us. They love our children. They protect and provide and present themselves to us in this neat little box, but still never really give us access to those deeper parts of them that were probably closed off long before we met them, right? I mean, we can always ask some questions like, what did you do today? What shall we do next? But questions about how do you feel and what do you need, baby, are usually off the table for them, right? 
And women, you know, we are intuitive and willing to love so we can feel closed doors, right? We don't know why it's closed. We just know it's there, right? And our good men and our good men, you know, they they try to ignore those closed doors as evidence of their manliness. But there's this knocking, knocking, knocking that he just can't ignore, right? So he might try to drown the noise with alcohol or gaming or smoking or marijuana or some secret sexual addiction, right? Or the adrenaline rush he gets by exposing his flaws to another woman who calls him king for a different reason. Okay, let's talk about the reality of dating, the dating pool over 40, but we'll, we'll do that later. <laughs> I'm always doing something later. Anyway, uh, but yeah, let's talk about men as is for a second, mama. You know, they always talk about the downside of dating a woman over a certain age, maybe 30, 35, saying she's probably a single mom and a bunch of kids and problems that a man has to deal with. But we never talk about the fact that dating a single man over 35 probably comes with his own drama, right? He's probably a single father also because women don't make babies by themselves, right? He probably has a good job, but, you know, you're probably inheriting a functional alcoholic at this point, a withholding workaholic. You're probably inheriting a very young man who already has sleep apnea or COPD because he coughs and hacks his way through the night. You can't sleep, right? He smokes too damn much and only breaks out in his mind. Or you're having to cope with his ego and your own sexual frustration because somehow he thinks he can smoke nonstop and still have enough blood flow to go a second round. Sis, listen, okay, that is your fault. You're not about to give me carpal tunnel trying to get your body to go somewhere it doesn't want to go. That's on you, okay? Girl, listen, a third barrier between us and safe masculinity is that women see the need that men have, but they don't want to help, okay? Listen, we got our own problems, and sir, you are one of them, all right? Men and women were not created to do the same things, and our lives are not better without you in it. We need y'all, but we can't always trust you to lead in the condition that you're in. And just like respect is a man's love language, safety is a woman's love language, okay? Safety emotionally, financially, physically, whatever it is, we would do whatever it takes to pursue safety for us and our children, even if we have to be the ones who ultimately provide it, okay? And I'm saying this during a time where kind of the buzzword for men is that their pain is our fault and they could possibly be healed if we were better at creating spaces for them to be vulnerable, right? But my thing is like, what's the point of creating a soft space for an actively violent heart, right? It's like the whole bull in a china shop example, right? Because listen, hear me out. If you're healing and your motivation and your validation has to come from me as the woman in your life... If I'm the one who has to create the space and opportunity for you to be vulnerable and then handle it correctly when you give it to me, if I have to design your crown and wear it every time it gets too heavy for you, then that makes me king. That makes me head of household. That makes me your mother. That makes me in charge. This type of relationship is more than a supporting role. It is the lead role because at some point a man has to take over, right? Like it, it has nothing to do with women or, or or single women wanting to be these hyper independent women because we don't need a man or because of some past childhood trauma 100 years ago. Hyper independent women exist because so many men are presently undependable. And that's not because men are incapable. Society systematically supports his optional participation in the family, right? They say stuff to us like, oh, you you lucky to have a good man. You lucky to, that he watches the kids. You lucky that he helps with dinner. You should be grateful for his minimal effort. And if he stops, you should expect that because he's just a man. What? <laughs> how, how does that thinking support a man whose love language is respect? Okay. 
Respect is earned. So by nature, it is a secondary emotion, as Tina would say if she made the song, okay? We are not saying that men cannot lead. We're just noticing that so many of them won't for whatever reason. And at some point, he has to say, I'm tired of being tired. I'm tired of drowning my sorrows with alcohol and numbing my pain with drugs, right? He has to be tired with the temporary relief that comes with sleeping with woman after woman or the constant disappointment of wanting something for nothing because your gambling spirit causes you to take all these uncalculated risks at every turn of your life because money is the only thing that matters to you. Because listen, as a woman, as a person, I would never submit to a God that I built with my own hands. You know what I mean? Like, what do I look like praying to a statue that I carved from a tree, right? I remember um, a story, one of my baby daddies, this is a long time ago, and I'm, we're all good, we're all cool. He saw a photo of me and the girls on the wall, right? And he commented how nice the picture was. And he said to me very nicely that, you know, I should have let him know that we were taking family pictures because he would have joined us, <laughs> I mean, he said it very nicely and I wasn't mad at him, but he just said it like he was doing us a favor by being in the picture, but not the actual family. You know, the the idol worship, the patriarchal male image doesn't help anybody. Did you feel triggered by seeing yourself left out of the family photos, realizing all the other moments you might actively be missing? Okay, good. I hope that door keeps on knocking. All right. (laughs) And listen, we're not here to tear men down, but I'm just venting out loud on behalf of all the female group chats that you are not privy to. Okay, because listen, Papa, your crown is heavy. Okay, your burden is not light. Our shoulders are not built for this type of weight. Our lives are not better without men in it, okay? We can carry on without you, but it's just not the same, right? Without the type of safety and warmth that a man provides, without the confidence and motivation that only he can offer a wife and child, leaves us moms bruised with broken backs, angry and stressed out, taking it out on your kids while you are not there, okay? And where are you, by the way, huh? You're sleeping in, you're on the golf course, you're in Vegas, you're on another work trip or convincing some other woman that you're such a great guy. But listen, ladies, um, here's an interesting thought, right? So what if a strange man started, you know, attacking us or any woman on the street, right? Would we not expect the first male stranger who came along to assist because of his innate physical advantage, right? This is a man who was just minding his own business. He don't know the woman involved in the fight. He doesn't know the man, but he would be immediately shamed for walking away and not doing anything at all, right? Well, then when it comes to the emotional danger that men face, are we women not responsible to help because of our innate advantage of, you know, nurturing and emotional accessibility. I mean, the semi-benefit of patriarchy insisting that the business of love and emotions is woman's work, um, you know, did kind of give us uh, more space and resources for developing our emotional tools, right? So it's an interesting question, but even if and when the answer is yes, help has its limits, right? Because ultimately healing is personal. Um, Bell Hooks, wrote a beautifully insightful book about men after interviewing them and reading male authors. Um, It's called The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love. And she said, for years, patriarchal culture has taught men that their selfhood, manhood, is affirmed by the lack of interest in personal growth. And then all of a sudden, the feminist movement comes along and women were bombarding men with these new emotional expectations, right? Collectively, men responded with a feeling of depression. 
She went on to say that much of the depression men suffer is directly related to their inability to be whole, right? There's that concept again of patriarchy separating you internally, right? She said that even though uh, men have been socialized to create and maintain false versions of themselves, most men still remember the true self that once existed. It is this memory of loss coupled with rage against the world that engenders this uh, depression. And, uh, you know, this could be evidenced by men perpetually kind of living in the bachelor party phase of life, trying to remember the good old days. And when we were young, wild and free versus committing to the future, he promised you, you know, when the lights were off. Um, But when it (laughs) when it comes to the whole broken family, you know, hyper independent lives that all of us live, um, Daniel Berrigan wrote about the need and importance of communities, you know, and kind of having these places where people can return to themselves. And he said something interesting. He said uh, relationships, committed partnerships should be seen as vital communities of resistance. Ew, I like it. In dominator culture, most families are not safe places. He said dysfunction, intimate terrorism and violence make them breeding grounds for war. Ooh, we honey, listen, we need to do a whole nother discussion on intimate terrorism. What? Because ultimately he says that You know, if we want to create a culture in which all males can learn to love, we must first reimagine family in all of its diverse forms, right, as a place of resistance. And so you might have to ask yourself, resistance to what? Well, I say it's to that thing or that energy that knows that we are stronger together than we are apart. I want to wrap up this point to the ladies. Um, One of the dopest things that I think Bell Hooks was able to kind of confess on our behalf, she said, when it comes to love, in reality, women are no more advanced than men in this area, right? Ultimately, all of us are seeking salvation and wholeness. Here's the thing. While it's evident that many men are not as willing to explore the path that leads to self-recovery as women are, we cannot journey far if men are left behind, right? They wield too much power to simply be ignored or forgotten, okay? That part says they wield too much power to be simply ignored or forgotten. It's kind of like saying the human mother of dragons can't miss her opportunity to love and train the dragon not to eat her when she's older. <laughs> there go my little Game of Thrones reference. But uh, but she finishes by saying, you know, women who love men, we, we don't want to take the journey without them. We need them beside us because we love them. And that was the end of her sentence. To say that we love men is an important message. Uh, saying we love you is a complete sentence because we don't want to imply that the only reason we want you around is because we need you for something, right? We need you to perform. We need you to protect or provide or to do, 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 which is exactly what patriarchy insists, right? Just be, just come back, baby. Just relax, okay? Moving on to my final point, Um, one of the reasons women are resistant to help men emotionally is because one of the barriers between us and safe masculinity is that sometimes even a man's healing can still feel hostile towards women. (laughs) The Bible says men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And I'm like, "Um, okay, God, but if you haven't noticed, men don't even go to church. So I don't think they know how to do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> like Jesus like literally died for the church while she insisted and watched him getting tortured in the process. So being a husband is a lot of work. Y'all got a big task cut out for you. <laughs> when a man finds a wife, he finds a big project, right? No, I'm just kidding. He finds a good thing. But, you know, um, Jesus, of course, did not die for a perfect church. You know, she didn't come to the table ready to go. He had to find her as is and make her better, which is not always today's understanding of relationship roles. Can we be honest? It used to be that people had to come together in marriage in order to build. But now with all of our, you know, civil rights and women's rights, we all are expected to get it together and then somehow come together. Right. Which doesn't seem to be working as well, because, you know, it's like you got a whole career in a house and a mortgage and I got a whole career in a house and a mortgage. And now we're supposed to figure out how to come together after we've been living so well by ourselves. And Right. Because as soon as you start dating somebody, what's the first question they ask? Be like, okay, well, what does he do for a living? And what does she do for a living? Um, You know, there's this podcast out there featuring um, a group of young people who have, you know, very entertaining conversations about gender issues and dating. And even though the conversations are interesting, um, you know, they they all seem to be a little male biased, um, including the women. But they're young and searching. So it's all good. But but, you know, I still don't like the misogynistic uh, influence that kind of hovers over their definition of an emotionally stable man. Okay. Both men and women on this panel have said at different times that an emotionally stable man is something that women today are not used to. And for that reason, they're going to mess it up. And for that reason, he's going to take himself away from her because, you know, she's not as emotionally developed as he is. Like, that is what defines him. Then the crowd goes wild and they all start clapping like, yes, brother, way to know your worth. Break up with her because that's what she gets, right? (laughs) I mean, he's still lording his gift of healing over her in an aggressive way, right? That's all I hear, right? Does that make sense? I mean, let's unpack like why would a man weaponize his emotional stability against women in general, you know, or a a woman that he doesn't know, right, in real life? First answer is probably because he was hurt by a woman and unforgiveness speaks, right? People who break their arms are not silent. They cry, they moan, they'll make their pain known. And people who have unforgiveness from broken hearts speak loudly about it, right? Not only is my pain present, but it is justified. Okay, it deserves to be here. (laughs) So, you know, the reason a man's partial healing or his counterfeit healing can still feel hostile to women is because he still gets off on being the solution, but still out of reach to us, right? He is still lording his position of healing over her in an aggressive way. And by doing that or clinging to that as a good thing uh, technically makes him as emotionally unavailable as the men he claims to be so different from. Now, listen, I'm not obviously suggesting that men or anybody subject themselves to an immature lover who willfully misuses and abuses them. But when you have men... (laughs) who are not even in relationships sharing this type of content as a warning sign for your weaponized healing, suggesting that all women need to be careful because an emotionally stable man is nearby and he don't take no shit. (laughs) It's like, you got to ask yourself, what is his intention and how is that more important than whatever he thinks his end goal is, right? And because... Because is there even an end goal with these types of conversations? Like, if you're honest and you watch that movie, um, uh, Beauty and the Beast, right? The Beast was not afraid to growl and yell at Belle initially because he was not afraid of losing her love. Why? Because even though he wanted her love, he never thought he would get it anyway, right? The intention of his initial effort was not dependent on the final result, right? There was a disconnect, aha, right? So beware of men and their counterfeit or their partial healing because birds of a feather attract each other. 
So it could be argued that these types of men intentionally choose incompatible partners or pick a version of toxic femininity similar to the type that raised him or the type that broke his heart before. So now he can make somebody pay for his prior pain. And that suggests, again, that you are not as healed as you think you are. To say an emotionally aware man is one who will leave you if you are not the same is not the compassionate partner that I think most women are looking for. I mean, this type of emotional uh, hierarchy, if that's the word, um, it's like husbands telling their wives like, hey, you better swing from the sexual chandelier tonight and every night or else I'm sleeping with somebody else tomorrow. Right. It's like it's pressure to perform. Right. Pressure to perform doesn't translate into the unconditional love that we're all striving for. Amen. It's our human nature to want to get to the results and skip as much of the process as possible, right? We want to be rich overnight. We want to be skinny overnight. We want to conflict manage by jumping right into the management part and ignoring the actual conflict, right? Like saying to a man or a woman, like, you know, you had your heart broken. Just get over it. Just move on. You can find somebody better. She didn't deserve you anyway. None of those things address the fact that I'm hurt and I can't ignore the pain that's happening right now just because healing is on the way eventually. Amen. I mean, we often want men to focus on mental health, which is future tense result without giving much attention to the actual mental illness that is present and happening right now. Right. Medicine and healing are two different things. We know that Uh, if you have a cold or any presence of disease, that disease is stopping you from functioning properly while it is present. Right. Medicine is the treatment that specifically stops the disease. And once the disease has been stopped or eradicated, only then can the body begin to recover and rebuild without the presence of the disease and without the presence of the medicine. Does that make sense? Right. Many of these gender triggering conversations are a bunch of people talking from a medicated state. Your healing is not complete. You haven't made it through the seven to 10 day dosage. You are not what the doctor has called clear because you haven't been able to survive 24 to 48 hours without medication as a crutch, without validation that you're doing a good job. Amen. Y'all don't hear me. Listen, women can function without men just fine, just like you can, you know, see with one eye or hear with one ear or still drive with one foot, but not as well, right? There are pieces of a woman that are naturally missing without a man present. And it is okay to say that. There are pieces of a man that are missing without a woman present. There's pieces of a child missing without one of their biological parents present, okay? Missing pieces, however, don't kill you. They don't define you necessarily, but they can make the journey forward a little more difficult. I mean, either you heal from it or you suffer from it. But the only reason both of those options exist is because the wound is present. Okay, you know, if I'm driving next to a woman who only has one hand, I don't know she only has one hand as long as she stays in her lane. Right. But if you are a man who chooses to get in her car and notices all what she has to do just to drive like everybody else, you have two choices, don't you? Either say, I'm getting out of the car because I prefer a partner who has two hands like me, or you could take your two hands and build her another hand. If you choose the latter, then yes, you get to stick around and be her coach and take no excuses for her to tap into her new life and new potential, right? And what a blessing it is to overcome resistance and the beauty of love, right? Right. Because if a man has truly extended compassion to himself and he knows what that feels like, he knows what that impact is. Then when he sees uh, fear or deficiency in a woman that he loves, his first response should not be to run from that. He should expect it. He should understand the feeling. Amen. 
Okay, I know we're just talking hypothetical, but I think that's important too because we spend so much time talking about hypothetically broken situations or the reality of broken situations. Let's start to reimagine, right? As he said, what family could be like and could look like so we can start believing that it could happen. When it comes to male healing, um, Neil Lundgren speaks about his inner struggle to do so in this cool essay that he wrote called The Night When Sleep Awoke. And he was talking about seeking therapy after an exhausting search for like a father figure and a role model in his adult years. He basically got tired of um, avoiding the hurt and anger. And he said, with assistance and support from therapeutically literate men and women, I began to explore the fear terrain of my heart, right? I began to grieve past losses and attachments. He said, when a man's emotional capacity to mourn is arrested, he's likely to be frozen in time, unable to complete the process of growing up, right? Because men who are whole don't deny their fear exists, but can speak about their fear without shame and their healing will often speak for itself, right? Women, listen, we can we can always be there to listen, to drive you to therapy, to pick up your medicine, but we cannot take the meds for you in hopes of passing the healing on to you, right? Listen, the women are rooting for the healed men and safe masculinity and the whole hero journey that men have to go on all by themselves to face their own fears and to hopefully make it home back in time for dinner, honey, okay? Because we will be there. Right. Because in our culture, we talk a lot about the flaws of men, dismissing everything that we don't understand about him as toxic masculinity. And again, my goal is always to face the tension between us as male and female and within us individually so that we're better equipped to name our emotions and experiences appropriately and then come up with an effective plan of action. Amen. That last part is up to you. I'm not above you in the healing process, but I do process my shit. Until next time, you can follow and engage with me on TikTok and Instagram at Good Mother Bad Woman. The next time we talk about this subject, which I will do again, I'm going to have a male guest and kind of get his beautiful insight into this pressing issue so that we can still approach this uh, from a loving space and wind up with a loving result. Mm-hmm.